There was one individual that the police did interview who I would have liked to have seen them investigate a little more thoroughly because I think there's enough commonalities in the personality type. Personally, I would have looked at him as a pretty good suspect for Asmodeus and therefore a suspect in the actual assault. Welcome to Murder Archives. We're up to episode seven of Fractured Silence, the death of Norma Reese McLeod. I'm Emma Curtin. Thanks for listening. Please leave a review where you're hearing this if you can. We've covered quite a bit and I'm interested to know if you've got any firm theories about who killed Norma. We're going to recap on what we've learnt so far, hypothesise possible scenarios, look at the family from a psychological perspective and throw in a new theory into the mix. Three of Norma's relatives play the roles of Edith, Norman and Reese in acting out the scenarios that might have happened in the Turak house. We'll also be chatting to forensic psychologist Dr Karen Scally. This adds a little more to our investigation. The question remains for me, and maybe for you, who killed Norma and why? Links for more information are in the episode description and find it all on our website, murderarchives.com.au. And email me your own theory, emma at murderarchives.com.au. So far, we've spoken to a range of people with great knowledge of the circumstances, but no one consistent culprit has emerged. I'm still wavering between Norman and Reese. The family are convinced Edith didn't do it. Charlie thinks Edith is the most likely suspect. The psychologist has other ideas. These experts have read the same source of information that's available to you on the Murder Archives website. Like the detectives on the case, when I started looking into Norma's death, I quickly ruled out the idea of accident. The 1929 pathologist report, plus modern analysis of the injuries, tell us that no fall, however hard, could have caused Norma's fractures to the back of the head. A failed robbery is also unlikely for several reasons. First, it was reported that nothing was taken or disturbed in the house. Second, there were no signs of a struggle and apparently no fingerprints that didn't belong to the family. Most importantly, if we believe that Norma couldn't have walked after being hit, would a thief really risk staying in the house to help her, making a lucky guess which was her bed? And if Norma could have walked after being attacked by a potential burglar, she'd certainly have been very groggy and more than likely simply collapsed on her bed. I doubt she could have neatly folded back the counterpane, got herself a compress and lay straight on the bed. No, everything says someone had to have carefully placed her on that bed after they were in the house, after the blow and after they saw what they had done. There is absolutely no doubt in my mind Norma was not attacked by a stranger. I was looking to the family. The forensic psychologist had other ideas. 
and this threw the proverbial but fascinating spanner into the works. But first, my focus. In my opinion, either Edith, Norman or Reese was guilty of the crime, whether intentional or not. But which one? Was it her mother as the police suspected? As I said in episode three, my initial impression of Norma's mother, Edith, was formed by the press and the police. I believe she had killed her daughter. This idea slowly dissolved as I gathered information through meetings with family members. But again, I needed to be mindful that the majority of those I spoke with were from Edith's side of the family. I'd had limited success locating those on Norman's side. This had the potential to skew my research and I couldn't ignore the possibility of bias. Please feel free to challenge this. Email me, emma at murderarchives.com.au. I had to be sure I'd reviewed other avenues of research beyond family input before coming to any conclusions. I began by reconsidering Asmodeus's letter and taking its contents at face value. Could Norma and Edith really have been arguing on that Monday afternoon? There's certainly room for doubt that Edith ever went shopping that day as she'd claimed. Her statements about timings were confused and evidence from the shop assistants was far from conclusive. If they had been arguing, as Asmodeus implied, about Norma's virginity, I asked myself what might have sparked that quarrel. I've already speculated about the possibility of Norma having a boyfriend, a theory I'd discounted, but maybe too quickly. I also raised the idea that Norma may have had a child, but if that had been true, Edith would surely have known about it. So why argue about virginity on this particular day? My thoughts turned again to the relationship between Norma and her mother, I thought it would be good to get a psychological perspective to help me analyse various possibilities. I completed a clinical doctorate in neuropsychology and within that a forensic specialisation, so essentially applying my psychological skills and neuropsychological skills to a forensic population, which can entail a variety of different kinds of work, but largely applied to the legal system. That's Dr Karen Scally, forensic psychologist. A psychologist helps uh, people in the community generally with um, psychological difficulties they're having. It may involve assessment of such individuals, but largely working in the treatment of individuals with psychological disorders. And a forensic psychologist, as I kind of hinted at, um, applies those skills to a forensic population. So it may be working with offenders in the legal system. It may be working with victims in the legal system, but applying those skills to legal questions. I asked her to give her thoughts on the psychological profiles of Norma and her family, noting, of course, that Karen could only work with the information available. Obviously, she didn't have the benefit of interviewing the potential suspects, so her advice was intended as a guide, not as a definitive criminal assessment. We began by looking at Edith. Edith, she's an interesting character. Judging from the circumstances of her engagement and then later marriage, uh, what we know about Norman's character, there's certainly enough evidence there to suggest that perhaps the marriage wasn't a particularly happy one or maybe very fulfilling from her point of view. And her comments about Norma, to me, suggest a heightened level of interest in her daughter, 
which may have been a kind of emotional substitute, I think, to perhaps where emotional support was lacking from the husband. So in this particular case, I'm not certain, but the hint would be that she's certainly over-involved or um, very comfortable with expressing that closeness to Norma, which she even admitted was kind of to the detriment of her relationship with her husband and son, you know, to sort of say, well, you know, they didn't matter. Yeah, it suggests a certain dynamic in the family for sure. Had Norma become Edith's substitute partner? And was Norma finding her mother's love too smothering? Even after death, Edith's devotion was unrelenting. She's buried in the same plot as Norma in the Melbourne General Cemetery, while Norman and Rhys lie separately in different South Australian graveyards. And again, if Norma returned her mother's affection to the same extent, why hadn't she told her about the land in Heidelberg? The word escape seemed key to Norma's story. Looking at her last year of life, it became obvious to me that Norma was planning to leave the family home, making a strike for independence to overcome a possibly depressive state of mind. She'd taken several steps toward independence in the two years before her death, and there were glimpses of a more positive attitude to life emerging. As well as buying land, Norma had started teaching and taken up mission work only months before she died and her enjoyment of golf suggested a desire to break free from a claustrophobic indoor life. These were all important milestones in Norma's young life, but her desire for freedom may have been the very thing that sealed her fate. Ultimately, Norma's only escape from Mandeville Crescent would be in a coroner's van. Dr Scully has thoughts on Norma's independent yearnings, Often the the child in question struggles to develop a sense of individuation and separateness from the family, which would start to kind of surface it around adolescence. So she may feel like a sense of wanting to sort of break away, but being unable to do that because perhaps she'd been raised in that environment and, and didn't know any better. In Norma's case, though, she seems to have had to some degree a lot of independence. So I'm not sure the extent to which a potential boundary dissolution had happened between the mother and her. I mean, she was able to go and get an education after after she finished her secondary education. She was very involved socially and even to the extent that she was allowed to get her tertiary education in something that was actually quite controversial at the time mm. or, you know, breaking mm. edge, the uh, the kindergarten teaching. She played golf. It sounded like she socialised at least to some degree with her cousins and some close friends. But the fact that she kind of bought that land secretly and the parents didn't know about that suggests that maybe she was maintaining the status quo and perhaps seeding some kind of plans for a, an independent life. If there had been an argument between Norma and Edith that day, could it have centred around the young woman's longing to leave the family home and set up on her own? Had Edith been resisting her daughter's desire for independence? Asmodeus didn't actually say he'd heard the women discussing Norma's virginity. In fact, he hadn't, it seemed, heard any of the actual conversation. He merely threw in the comment about Virgo intacta as part of his theory, possibly a juicy tidbit to catch the detective's eye. If it happened at all, the heated argument could have been about anything. Must you play golf today? I thought perhaps we might go into town and do some shopping. I've been looking forward to a game of golf and I've already spoken to Cousin Edith. 
but we hardly spend any time together. Now that you're teaching and doing your charity work and you're leaving me tomorrow for Hillsville, please, darling. No, Mother, I've told you. I'm not your little girl anymore. I feel like I can't breathe in this house. I need my own life. What do you mean, your own life? Some space of my own. A place of my own. I've been making plans. Just as soon as I've saved enough money. What? You can't leave me with Daddy and Reese. How could you be so thoughtless? What will I do without you? They don't understand me like you do. Mother, for God's sake, I'm 29. I can't stand this suffocating environment any longer. Now, go do your shopping and leave me alone. I'm going to play golf. I found it easy to imagine this heated conversation between mother and daughter. I also thought it possible that Edith would become angry, criticising her daughter for her ingratitude. We know that Edith could certainly be severe when she wanted. Visualising the next step, however, I found impossible. I just couldn't see, by any stretch of the imagination, Edith raising a cricket bat over her daughter's head and striking Norma so hard that it would kill her daughter, all in a fit of anger. Am I biased? Mothers have certainly been known to kill their children, sometimes for no apparent reason. But almost everything I'd heard about Edith suggested a gentle, kind woman. Dr Scally has thoughts on Edith as the attacker. Edith, I guess if you were to pick somebody out of the family, would seem to have at least had more of a potential for identifying a motive. So if it was a case of, say, Norma trying to break away and her not being able to deal with that, feeling quite dependent on her daughter, that could be developed maybe further into a potential motive. And it seems that out of the family, she was the one person who was close by and obviously found Norma. So she would be my number one suspect, certainly out of the family, but I don't feel a strong inclination toward her as a suspect purely because most of the information linking her to the crime has been tainted. The crime scene's been tainted and timelines haven't been solidified either with her being at the scene or away from the scene. Leaving aside our understanding of Edith's character for a minute, the physical evidence didn't seem to fit either. Let's say Edith had managed to knock Norma unconscious how would she have carried her to the bed alone? Norma was fairly petite, but she would have been a dead weight, a heavy load to carry by this stage. Edith was only five centimetres taller than her daughter, and photographs showed she was a slender woman. Would she have had the strength? I'm sure it would have been impossible for Edith to have carried her unconscious daughter all by herself. Even the idea of Norma being semi-conscious and walked to her bed by her mother was difficult to imagine. But I couldn't rule out her having help, either from her son or husband, one or both of whom may not have been in the city as they claimed, but we'll get to that. More significant in my mind was the use of Reese's underpants. When I visited the house in Mandeville Crescent, it became much clearer just how close the bathroom was to Norma's bedroom. In fact, I took only four steps between the two rooms. In 1929, immediately to the left of the bathroom door was a linen press, no doubt full of towels, face washers, etc., much more suited to use as a compress than a pair of underpants. If you had to go to the bathroom anyway to wet the pants, why not simply pick up something more appropriate while you're there? 
I just couldn't understand a devoted mother who had a deep sense of propriety resorting to a pair of underpants to soothe her precious daughter's brow. But I've had people say I'm making too much of this, that people do strange things in stressful situations. What do you think? Dr Scully again. The fact that there were a, a pair of men's underpants on her face and over her eye, in a modern context, that underwear would be interpreted not as a compress, as has been in this case, but as a potentially a degrading sexual taunt. In today's context, it would most definitely be tested for semen, and certainly. And the reason I think it still kind of remains suspicious is the fact that the bathroom was close by, where you would obtain the water to wet the clothing so you could easily obtain a towel at the same time to act as a compress. There was nothing in the way it was described how it was applied to her face that suggested it was actually fastened and acting as a compress either. So to me, it's always a very suspicious characteristic, particularly because the mother didn't remove it. So Mm. assuming that somebody else had put it there, yeah, I still think it's quite curious that it remained there. The difficulty in definitively giving any significance to a certain act is that we know that the crime scene was tainted. So in any case where either the killer or the people who are first on the scene alter things, maybe with good reason to preserve the person's dignity or or in administering first aid, it changes everything. So how we interpret those things, we can't know. Potentially the mother is not the killer, but she grabbed the first thing at hand and did put it on her head. If it was left by the killer who was a member of outside the family, then the interpretation would be one of a contemptuous kind of act, maybe Mm. signalling some sort of sexual motivation. So had Edith come home and discovered Norma exactly as she told the police and been ignorant of what had happened? For all the reasons we've discussed before, the apparent disinterest in the police investigation, the prolonged reluctance to talk to the police and the failure to call an ambulance, I didn't think so. I believe Edith came home that day witnessing another family member either hitting or having hit her daughter. The yelling Asmodeus apparently heard, if this letter is to be believed, could well have been anyone. Had Norma been killed by her father or her brother? I found it interesting that of all the family members, Norman was the only one not accused of the crime by members of the public in letters sent to police. Was this because Norman was seen as a pillar of society? He was a military man, someone to be respected in a respectable community. But this wouldn't be the first time that an apparently upright family man had hidden dark domestic secrets. The name Alan Hoare comes to mind here, a school vice-principal in Ireland who, in 2016, killed his wife and three children, then himself, in the face of a marriage breakup. He was reported to have said to a psychotherapist, People think of me as a pillar of the community, if only they knew. My impression of Norman, as I said in episode 5, is of a controlling slightly depressed man who was probably disappointed with his career and lack of achievements. Instead of the strong head of the household he might wish to appear, to me he seems inept. He had failed as a teacher while his brother and brother-in-law were both esteemed headmasters. 
He had failed to reach great heights in the military, while nephews proved their worth and valour on the battlefields of the Great War. He didn't seem to have a strong bond with his mother or siblings, unlike his wife Edith and her sisters. And he had a wife and children who seemed to have very little affection for him. I began to wonder whether Norman's sense of inadequacy and isolation had resulted in his controlling behaviour, a need to instil authority in his own domestic sphere in a way that he could do nowhere else. The idea of psychological abuse within the MacLeod family began to form in my mind. Psychologists argue that control is a dominant behavioural characteristic of abusive men achieved through criticism, verbal abuse, financial control and cruelty. He does seem like a kind of an isolated individual, but I can't gather really from the information we have whether that's self-imposed isolation or, or whether he was rejected by society and peers. Certainly he's somebody who has had a level of inadequacy throughout his life with not being accepted into the military initially or not being deemed fit for combat, I believe it was. So he hasn't had a lot of success. He's kind of got by but struggled throughout life, it would seem. And what do you think about Edith's engagement to Norman? And from what we know from family folklore, Norman almost manipulated that situation. Do you sense a, a manipulative character in Norman or is that my reading of it? Well, it, it could be. We don't really know anything about the extent of their relationship prior to that time when he got sick and, and asked her to, to marry him. It sounds like from the characterization after that Edith might have acted purely out of pity or, or empathy toward him for the state that he was in and maybe believing he wasn't going to survive and she was granting his undying wish. But... I think it's all very speculative at this mm. point. We we don't have a lot of data on Norman at all. He, cer- he certainly doesn't appear to be a very light or happy-go-lucky kind of guy, <laughs> you know, looking at photos and, and reading about him. So it does sound a little bit like he might have been a difficult person to live with. He's little lived hints. a life on the outer, yeah. it seems, yeah. both uh, on the in the smaller circle of his family and then broader circle of society. Mm. And so maybe he clung to Edith in a way as his means of, a, of attaining a family. You know, maybe he did resort to manipulative tactics because he lacked the social skills to woo somebody mm. of, of value. That's quite possible, that he was quite dependent kind of individual. We certainly know that Norman tightly controlled the family finances and it seems that Reese felt a sense that his father was disappointed in him, which probably came from constant criticism. Is it possible that Reese's antisocial and petty criminal behaviour may be evidence of what we might call today acting out against that abuse? And what about the comments about Norma's apparent weight loss? Could this be an indication of some level of stress? Psychology also tells us that the controlling behaviour of an abuser often escalates in the face of a family member's attempt to gain independence. It made sense to me, given all Norma's preparations, that she was certainly looking for a level of independence. Did Norman see this as a challenge to his control? Had deep resentment been triggered by the simple act of Norma going to play golf? I don't think you should go gallivanting on the golf course. It's not decent. You should be at home helping your mother. 
We've had this conversation. I've told you I've made plans to play with Cousin Edith. Plans can be changed. Telephone her back. Your mother needs you. You know she can't hear properly. Get down to the shops and help her. Mother will be fine. She's shopped alone before. Or perhaps Reese can go. He has to go to work. It's not a man's job to help his mother. It's yours. Well, I won't change my plans. I have a life outside of this house. You can't stop me. I'm sick of you bullying us all. I'm going to play golf, and what's more, I'm going to leave this house for good. I've made plans. How dare you walk away from me. Come back here when I'm talking to you. In an impulsive moment, fuelled by his rising anger, perhaps Norman grabbed the cricket bat from the box room right next to the back door and struck. I don't believe Norman would have meant to kill his daughter. He merely lashed out without thinking what he was doing. But there she lay on the floor of the family home, maybe unconscious, perhaps semi-conscious. The phone rang several times as cousin Edith tried in vain to contact Norma. What would Norman do? Calling a doctor now would only have raised difficult questions for him. He may well, like others to follow, have mistakenly believed that Norma would survive without hospitalisation and none of this sordid business would be made public. So could Norman have carried his daughter to her bed by himself? This idea seemed unlikely, just as it had in the case of Edith trying to move her alone. Norman was 63 and known to be a weak man with a limp. So, as suggested, had Reese been there the whole time, desperately trying to calm the situation but failing to stop his father's final terrible act? Perhaps he stayed to help and then left for the city. He could quite easily fit the description of the man seen by two people running from Mandeville Crescent. While he was taller than the five foot eight inches described, Judging height from a distance and while in motion is not an easy thing to do, so there is room for error. Or had Edith returned from shopping, just as she said, surprised to find the back door open and her husband home, a panicked look in his eye. What's happened? Why are you still here? It's Norma. There's been an accident. She's not well. We had an argument and she slipped and fell. Together, Edith and Norman may have carried their daughter to her bed, removed her shoes and covered her with an eiderdown. But here again, I came unstuck with those underpants. I can't deny that a sinister explanation crossed my mind. Was this intended as a gesture of humiliation made by an angry father resentful of his unconscious daughter's defiance? Edith may have felt terrified in the face of her husband's anger to remove them from Norma's head. Or again, do you think I'm making too much of this? From this point, events took the course outlined in the testimonies of those called to help Norma. Norman may well have left for the city via the back gate, unseen by anyone. Alternatively, Norman may not have left the house at all. There's certainly no record of the police checking Norman's alibi, He may have hidden in his bedroom or study, listening intently to all the comings and goings. Why else would Edith say to Dr Thwaites when asked where Norman was that he had gone to town but she didn't know where he was? 
Norman had told police he had gone to Reese's office. If he had really gone, Edith would have been able to contact him there by phone. But she hadn't. Why not unless she was hiding something? To me, Norman seemed a very plausible suspect. But what about Reese? Repeatedly, I asked myself why Reese was apparently never interviewed by the police and why he was so noticeable by his absence. It crossed my mind, as discussed in the last episode, that Norman's relationship with Superintendent Walsh might have extended to encouraging him to turn a blind eye, taking any potential heat off Reese. Was Reese an accidental killer being protected by his parents? There were certainly accusations made against him by the members of the public. The cryptic message to police relating to interviewing Reese's employees suggests that he may not have been in the office at the time of Norma's death as he'd said. Potentially, on that dreadful Monday, all four McLeods sat down for lunch. We know from statements made by Edith McLeod that Reese had been in Warburton that weekend, a country town about 80 kilometres east of Turak. So maybe he returned home on the morning of the 9th of September, planning to go to work in the afternoon. Or he may well have arrived from Warburton after lunch, expecting no one to be home. But if Reese killed his sister, albeit unintentionally, what might have been his motive? Looking at the siblings' characters suggests they were very different people. Dr Scully had her thoughts about Reese. The impression I get about Reese is that he was a little bit troubled. So there's a bit of a suggestion that maybe he was a bit spoilt growing up. You know, there's a sense that he was a lot more irresponsible than Norma, which you could imagine would happen if Edith took a great interest in Norma and perhaps kept her a bit under her thumb. And maybe Reese was allowed to allow a lot more freedom, in his case, to, to run amok. Mm. So it sounds as though he was a little bit troubled as, as maybe a teenager. In contrast to her brother, Norma seemed to be almost a model child, assuming, of course, all references to lovers and unwanted pregnancies are discounted. She lived a quiet life dedicated to educational and charitable pursuits. She was also clearly favoured by her mother. Could this have been a cause of resentment, creating a rift between brother and sister? While this may not have been a direct reason for Reese to attack Norma, it may have been smouldering just under the surface, ignited on that Monday afternoon by a fairly insignificant issue. What might have sparked an argument? Had Reese been drinking? We knew he could be antagonistic when drunk, and I imagined him swigging from a hip flask, knowing his parents kept no alcohol in the house. Did a row break out? overheard by Asmodeus, who assumed it was two women. We already know that Reese was not great with money. He'd just returned from a weekend trip to Warburton, had recently paid a fine for his hit-and-run charge, and obviously liked good social life. He was also known to frequently borrow money from his friend Jeff. By contrast, Norma seemed to be a good saver. After all, somehow she'd bought that piece of land. Did Reese try to borrow money from his sister? Come on, Norma. It'll just be a short-term loan. No, no more. I'm sick of bailing you out. You need to start standing on your own two feet and grow up. Anyway, 
I'm saving to get out of here. I've bought some lands and I intend to start living my own life. What land? Where? Mum and Dad won't let you leave. Not their perfect little girl and you're not leaving me alone with them. The land's my business. Anyway, I'm not perfect. I just don't give them as much trouble as you, that's all. You're irresponsible and we're all sick of it. Look at you. Have you been drinking again? Aren't you supposed to be at work? I don't need you telling me how to live my life. At least I have a life. I know how to have fun unlike you, Miss Goody Two-Shoes. You're pathetic. I can't talk to you when you're like this. As she turned to leave for the game of golf, perhaps Reese lashed out, enraged by her unwillingness to help him and for reminding him of all his many faults in the eyes of his parents. From what we know of Reese, he did have a temper and often found himself in hot water, so it was possible. The cricket bat was easily reached, just inside the door of the box room, which was his dressing room, so he would have known where to grab it. But what then? Had he carried her to her bed alone? This may have been possible. He was known to be an athletic man much taller than Norma. Or had someone else helped him? Had Edith witnessed the whole dreadful argument or perhaps walked in in the middle of it or just after the attack? In her distress, had she helped her son carry Norma to her bed? Or perhaps, as in the previous scenario, it was just Reese and Norman alone, acting together to deal with Norma's lifeless body. So whether alone or with the collusion of one or both of his parents, Reese could have helped settle Norma, then left for the city to establish an alibi, thinking the police would never believe that he hadn't met to hit his sister so hard. Dr Scully and I also discussed the fact that Reese and Norma shared a bedroom, which seemed odd given they were 23 and 29 at the time, and there was a study and box room in the house, either of which could have been converted to another bedroom. Did sexual abuse play a role in the tragedy of Norma's death? Did that relate to Asmodeus's hints about Norma's virginity? While we have no hard evidence, I think it's possible whether between Norma and her father or her brother. Dr Scully and I firmly believe that the McLeods were a dysfunctional family. The extent to which this manifested itself, whether through psychological, physical or sexual abuse, may never be known. Having explored the possible scenarios, Dr Scully and I discussed possibilities. I argued that there were a few things that suggested to me that Reese was not the culprit. First, while the hit-and-run incident indicates that Reese was capable of fleeing from the scene of a crime, such behaviour would imply that he would have panicked and left Norma as she was, not stayed and helped to make comfortable. He strikes me as an impulsive character. Second, if there had been a struggle, as a strong young man it seems more likely that he might have pushed her, not waited until she turned away and hit her over the head. Third, I'd met Reese's daughter, who, perhaps naturally, didn't believe her father capable of violence. I'd also met Reese's best friend's daughter, a woman who knew Reese and found it hard to imagine him harming anyone. She also argued that her father was a very astute judge of character, who couldn't have stayed friends with Reese for 70 years if he thought him guilty. Fourth, a sentimental part of me hoped that Norma had confided in Reese about her land, 
and that he was paying the rates after her death as a way of honouring her memory in some small way. But even now I'm not totally convinced of my own argument. The idea of Rees as the culprit was heightened when my attention was drawn to the public re-examining of a very famous cold case, the murder of John Bonnet Ramsey in 1996. This was coincidentally much in the news at the time of my first meeting with the psychologist. It struck me that there were several similarities between this and the McLeod case, notably statements that didn't add up, the closing of family ranks and resistance against police interference. Most significantly, the police had focused initially on Jean Bonnet's mother, but after a 20-year investigation, attention now centred on her brother as the killer. For those of you not familiar with the crime, Jean Bonnet's parents had called police on Boxing Day 1996, claiming that their six-year-old daughter was missing and that they'd found a ransom note. The family was affluent and well-known, so kidnap was possible. But when detectives arrived at the home, they were told that Mr Ramsey had discovered the girl's body in their basement. She had a fractured skull and been strangled with a garrote. Her wrists were tied and duct tape placed over her mouth. As already indicated, the police initially suspected Jean Bonnet's mother, believing she accidentally killed her daughter in anger and the ransom note and appearance of the body were staged to cover it up. It was also reported that the Ramses gave several televised interviews but resisted police questioning whenever possible. Ultimately, nobody was charged with the killing and media reports questioned the police handling of the case. This all sounded very familiar. In September 2016, the American network CBS broadcast a controversial documentary suggesting that Jean Bonnet's brother Burke had lashed out and killed his sister following an argument over a chunk of pineapple. Killing her with a flashlight used as a bludgeon, it's argued, his parents had acted to cover up the shameful incident. While known to be quiet and reserved, Burke apparently often had emotional outbursts, frequently getting angry with his sister. It was argued that as the oldest, he'd been the apple of his mother's eye until his baby sister came along. His jealousy, it was said, lay only just below the surface. However, I should stress nothing has been proven against Burke in court and he is now suing the CBS for $750 million US dollars. Could Reese have resented his sister, as alleged of Burke, finally snapping to the point of no return? I couldn't deny it was possible, but doubt still lingered in my mind. What I didn't doubt, however, was that the McLeods, as suggested of the Ramses, all became complicit in covering up a tragedy. To a certain extent, Dr Scally agreed with me. But for her, they were covering up a tragedy caused not by themselves, but by an outsider known to Norma. 
Well, I don't think there's really a well-established motive for any of the families. So I think it's very difficult to speculate, particularly with regard to Norman or Reese. Both would appear to have solid alibis anyway for not being near the scene. Despite the impression we might have of Norman as being a bit of an outsider and potentially manipulative or authoritarian figure, he's very accepting of his daughter's independent lifestyle mm. and education, perhaps more so than Edith from what I can actually gather. So nothing, there's nothing strong there to suggest to me of their, either of their involvement in her death. For Dr Scully, two pieces of this puzzling case were crucial. The Asmodeus letter and the man mentioned in previous episodes, Walter Maxwell Dumont Dunn. You may recall he was the man a couple of people had suggested had something to do with the case. He was also interviewed by police and was certainly known to Norma. Let's start with Dr Scully's impression of the Asmodeus letter. Before we even actually go into analysing the content of the letter, just the actual name Asmodeus is highly significant and really made this individual very suspicious for me from the start. So Asmodeus, as you probably already indicated in previous episodes, it's been sort of variously defined, but none of the definitions are good, um, you know, as a obscure kind of Hebraic demon who's the destroyer of domestic happiness. There's also connotations that this sort of demonic figure was sort of a sexual lust bent on this kind of demon as well. So that's highly significant for me, for an individual to be inserting themselves into an investigation and adopting that name. It suggests to me somebody who might be quite narcissistic. Also, the the destroyer of domestic happiness also suggests that perhaps the wealthy socialite family was targeted as a whole. So even from the start, before you look at the content of the letter, I think that the name is quite significant. The second reason, what other clue it kind of gives to us is that at that time, considering there was pretty much no easily available search engines, the knowledge of that demon, which is so obscure, already narrows it down to somebody who's very widely read. The the type of character that he's assuming would suggest somebody who's very narcissistic and greatly interested in their own intellectual superiority. So there's a couple of different levels to the choice of that name. As far as the actual contents, I mean, there's there's so much to go on. I mean, first of all, I agree with the um, linguistic expert mm-hmm. in, you know, picking up all of the inconsistencies in it, which already suggests um, a lot of deception going on in the letter and hints at a closeness to the family, which they're obviously not admitting explicitly. I feel in the note there's other indications that leads me to believe that this person's not only got more knowledge of the family and the assault than he lets on, but that he's actually the perpetrator. And that is different things like attempting to assert sort of a victim blame in claiming that Norma may have somehow provoked the attack through being sort of an obstinate, troublesome person. The Virgo intacta comment is quite startling to me in its lewdness for the time and for a young woman recently deceased. And to me, that's indicative of uh, a kind of malicious and sexual contempt for the victim. So, for instance, if you're looking in modern modern ways of actually analysing criminal acts, it's quite common for the killers themselves to insert themselves into the invest- investigation um, by writing to police. There's many serial killers who've done that. So, mm. like the Z- Zodiac Killer mm. and um, Green River Killer and the 
kind of things that they have in common is this kind of personality where they're not able to cope with slights and rejections and engage in this kind of continuous attempt to elevate their imagined intellect and importance. In looking at the kind of character that Asmodeus is, so as I mentioned, this sort of narcissistic kind of character who would appear to have some disdain for happy, wealthy sort of socialite families, maybe a chip on their shoulder about society in general. It's my belief that what you want to be looking for is somebody who is highly intelligent or well-educated, someone who's a little bit on the fringes of society, maybe insert themselves into higher society but not necessarily come from that, and somebody who potentially would go around the neighbourhoods walking and observing families could be somebody who's a bit of a peeping Tom or or just observing who comes and goes from different houses and that sort of thing. And that was one other thing that was hinted at in the um, Asmodeus letter was almost admitting that type of stalking behavior where he was saying, you know, I routinely go walking for a couple of hours, you know, a few times a week. Um, and as Charlie Bazina pointed out, he, he obviously stood there for half an hour. That's right. Which is a bit unusual. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's certainly revealing that type of behavior. Whether or not I believe he actually did that in constructing the letter, I think it's revealing in him saying that's something he routinely does. I don't necessarily he believe that this character actually did that. But in being deceptive in the letter, obviously didn't take into account those inconsistencies, mm-hmm. you know, that, oh, I, I heard two female voices arguing, but I didn't take any notice and, you know, I don't know what they said. So, so there's a few different levels where he's obviously being very deceptive, but in the deception, I think it reveals a lot about the character himself and what his modus operandi might actually be. I asked Dr Scully what she thought this letter had to do with Dunn. So for me, the most likely offender is Walter Maxwell Dunn, who was already nominated by several tip-offs in the public. This is somebody who had very high kind of literary chops. They have the the type of profile in terms of the knowledge for, with reference to the Asmodeus character. There's somebody who later in life has shown to be a highly deceptive individual, very chameleon-like, all things to all people, lie about different, you know, claiming at one point that they had a degree from one university and then, you know, another high-status position within the royal flying corps in another both proven to be completely false allegations. He's, and at the time, he was known to people in society by the title doctor, which we know there's no proof that he ever uh, obtained any MD or PhD of any kind. Mm-hmm. And he was very well known to the family for a number of years and suddenly and unceremoniously, perhaps, disconnected from association with the family two years prior. So we kind of wonder why. Um, this is a man who was the same age, round about, give or take five years as, as Norma as well. So, you know, you can begin to see a bit of a profile here of a man who quite likely is quite narcissistic, deceptive, all things to all people, had a very close association with the family, but for some reason was not associated, didn't visit the house anymore for the previous two years. So he's ticking a lot of boxes. A million questions ran through my mind as Dr Scully made this statement, and I immediately began to questioning my own assumptions but I wasn't quite ready to let go. Why did she think he was guilty? He appears to have been rebuffed by the household, including by her parents, perhaps as a result of unwanted advances to Norma two years previous. 
his response indicates also psychological distancing to the assault. Now, this is on the presumption he's the offender, though, because he refers to it as the happening and is a little bit disparaging of the police as well in that he says, enlighten you, which isn't really in keeping, I think, with an innocent party attempting to provide help to solve this suspicious death who he was of a person he was very well acquainted with. So to me, it demonstrates narcissism and grandiosity. I played devil's advocate. What about the lack of fingerprints in the house other than those of the family? Well, my suspicion is in terms of things that were done at the crime scene, when Edith first found Norma, I think she enlisted a friend to come help. Isn't that right? The neighbour, yeah. The neighbour came and helped. And in the records it says that they wiped away yellow mucus from her mouth. Now, there could be two different interpretations of that. One, it could indicate a sexual violation, or two, it could be the leaking of cerebrospinal fluid from, which is very common once it becomes mixed with blood from a subarachnoid hemorrhage. The CSF can take on a yellow color as opposed to its normal clear color. So the significance and what that fluid represented, we don't know. But that's mm-hmm. that's one indication where by modern standards we would have an answer to that. Yeah. But what that does tell us, that one admitted aspect, it does show that they came in and altered the crime scene. Now, rather than, say, covering for their own guilt, it could be trying to preserve the family's honour and the victim's dignity if they had been sexually violated. We've got no way of knowing for certain whether Norma was sexually assaulted or not, as Mollison's original pathology report was fairly brief on that topic. So I spoke to current forensic pathologist Byron Collins about this issue to see what he had to say. It says the genital organs did not show any signs of interference. So you really can't tell much from that whether she was in fact raped. You can't tell anything from that simple information. Well, no, because it is too general and not specific enough. But suffice it to say that certainly an individual can be raped if you want to use that term or have vaginal penetration by some sort of object and there be no external signs identified Mm -hmm. and then at at that stage one might only be able to identify that there's been some degree of activity by the presence or absence of semen but there is no description of all the genital organs which, which are made up by the external genital organs and then the internal organs the vagina the uterus ovaries and fallopian tubes. We really don't know what they were like because it doesn't say anything about normality or otherwise. It only talks about signs of interference. Was Dunn in a relationship with Norma or been spurned by her? Would her parents' absence from the house have provided a window of opportunity for a secret visit? Perhaps there was a lover's tiff or a spurned lover's tiff that ended in violence. Were these the raised voices heard by Asmodeus? And was the content of the fight sexually related as implied in the anonymous letter? Could Dunn have been the young man seen running away from Mandeville Crescent that afternoon? I'm not sure of his height, but he would have been in his early 30s at this point, and later photos showed him to be of slim build. So he could well have fit that description. But why had the police given Dunn so little attention? obviously convinced, for whatever reason, that he had nothing to do with Norma's death. Well, it could be for the very reason why he probably got by in life as it was. I mean, in subsequent writings about this individual, 
many people were quite convinced that he, you know, was how he portrayed himself to be. But there was other parts of society who claimed him to be a sham. And it may be, you know, if he's adopting this sort of doctor title and things like that, that police at the time were quite reticent to call somebody like that out or even maybe suspect them in the first place. And perhaps they took at face value that he was no longer really in the family society for the previous two years. Despite all this, the big question for me was, if Norma had been attacked by someone other than a family member, why would Norman, Edith and Reese have kept quiet? She may have been found in a completely different position or place to where we're led to believe. It may be that they carried her to the bed and covered her up, maybe even dressed her again. Who knows? From my point of view, all I would interpret is that it's equally as likely that a cover-up and silence after is too. Well, I mean, they can't bring her back to life, but maybe they don't want to bring the additional shame to her character in death and whatever dishonour that would impose on the family as well. And what about the doctors? Why would they not have called an ambulance? Did the family ask them not to? If they're giving the doctors false information mm. because they've already covered up, then the, the doctors and then the pathologists after that are going on false information. So their conclusions are going to be somewhat limited as well. It's possible that if Norma was inclined to depression, as suggested by some, the doctors around her bed may have initially thought it was a suicide attempt. Remember, no one at this point knew about the huge fracture in her skull. It seems hard to believe now, but until 1958, attempting suicide was considered a criminal offence in the state of Victoria. Would the doctors really want to expose Norma and her family to all the publicity and shame that this might entail? Perhaps their thought process was, if she lived, no one would be any the wiser. And what about Dunn himself? Would he have stayed to make Norma comfortable? Would he have shown remorse? This is somebody who I think potentially was rebuffed by Norma or someone similar and therefore carried a great deal of resentment toward either her or who she represented, say, as a subtype. So I think if we're going to link the Asmodeus character to being the killer, which I have in my mind, really that letter indicates that there's still a great deal of resentment and contempt really for the individual and if the person placed the underpants on her head that would certainly signal a high degree of contempt mm. as well. And if he was Asmodeus why would he write the second letter stating that he didn't know why the police were so interested in him? I interpreted that as distancing himself because the police wanted him to come forward in person and so if he was known to police already, he obviously wouldn't want to come forward and show his face. And so maybe he was panicking a little and backing out. Without doubt, this theory couldn't be ignored. The very reason we wanted to do this podcast was to get other opinions. And here was one that needed consideration. Okay, so I think if you were to continue investigating this particular crime, what I'd be very interested in is a linguistic and penmanship analysis with particular attention paid to the anonymous public letters. In my opinion, two of the anonymous letters were written by Asmodeus as well, perhaps as a, a way of throwing the investigation in different directions. So Karen, just to clarify for the listeners, you're talking here about the letter that implicates J.G. David and the one that implicates Mr. Burt. Yeah, and the reason I believe they were written by Asmodeus is the particular way 
Asmodeus has been referred to in these two letters. So it's always written capitalized and prominently. In one of the letters, in fact, the placement of the word Asmodeus and how it's written is completely different writing style to the body of the letter. And I think it acts as a sort of inadvertent psychological signature because instead of the word Asmodeus being placed on the left-hand side, as you would when you go on to a next line, he's actually placed it at the bottom right corner, as you would when you're signing your name. So I think that's quite telling. Interestingly, the, the first one that I pinpointed as one, an anonymous letter, I believe, Asmodeus has written, is interesting from another point of view because it's implicating J.G. David and in the letter saying that this is a relative of the deceased. Now, we know that J.G. David was, I think, Norman's brother-in-law. That's is right. that right? Yep. So only a person very close to the family would be aware that he was a relative of the deceased. So I think definitely that one's worth further investigation. In saying all of that, I think it's interesting as well that there's a, a little bit of a linguistic link between one of these anonymous letters and Walter Dunn's statement that he made to police. And that is in that wording of, let me enlighten the police. So that particular letter that implicates J.G. David uses the turn of phrase, you wish to be further enlightened, re Asmodeus. And in Walter Dunn's statement, he indicates that he doesn't believe he can enlighten the police in any way. So there's certainly one tenuous little in linguistic link, but I think all of these little links between Asmodeus and the anonymous letters and my belief that Asmodeus was Walter Dunn, I think would warrant further investigation and you may be able to strengthen those links with a combined linguistic and penmanship analysis. I needed to go back to the drawing board and find out more about Dunn. I also needed to talk to a handwriting expert to test Dr Scully's theory about the various letters. That's where we're heading next. In the meantime, some things to think about. What are your thoughts about Dr Scully's theory? Have you looked at the letters on the website? What are your thoughts? Have we missed anything? If you want to share your thoughts or challenge my hypotheses, contact me by email anytime. Emma at murderarchives.com.au